0: Our reading is from the second chapter of James and in many translations, the passage we've read is titled Faith and Deeds or Faith and Works. Personally, I quite like the message version's title, Faith in Action. It's a bit less polarizing because I don't think James was trying to divide people into two camps, the do-gooders and the good-faithers. He was laying down a gauntlet for integrity and authenticity. Just a quick warning, James doesn't mince his words and he doesn't leave any room for pretense. So hold on to your seats. We're gonna look at what James means in the passage so that we can humbly accept what God plants within us, just as James encourages his listeners to do in chapter one, verse 21. First, let's revisit some of this reading, but this time from the message version. Do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words, but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? What if you see an old friend dressed in rags, half-starved, and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. But you walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear some of you saying, sounds good, you take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, they fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you saying you believe in the one and only God, but then see you complacently sitting back as if you've done something wonderful? Well, that's just great demons do that what good does it do them use your heads do you suppose that for a minute you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse then from verse 26 the very moment you separate body and spirit you end up with a corpse separate faith and works and you get the same thing a corpse James is one straight talker, hey? Apparently, Martin Luther, as in the monk, who's often referred to as the father of the Reformation, didn't initially want the book of James included in his translations of the New Testament, calling it a right strawry epistle with nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Sorry, I don't know why I did that impression, because Luther was actually German. Anyway, so why did Luther say that? because he read this passage as though James was contradicting the apostle Paul's statements about being saved by grace or saved by faith. But before we get entangled in any historical debate, let's remember that Paul repeatedly urges believers to have a living, active faith that bears fruit. In Colossians 1, verse 6, in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 22, and again in Ephesians 5, verse 9. Oh, and by the way, Luther withdrew his written critique of James a few years later in 1522. So, back to James and the early church that he was writing to. James was the half-brother or cousin of Jesus, and he was a prominent leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. The church was persecuted and poor, yet surrounded by poverty and persecution, James is super devout in prayer, so much so, I kid you not, His name, nickname I suppose, was Camel Knees. Mm. James, this devout and prayerful community leader, writes to challenge the integrity of people who profess to follow Christ. He'd seen problems arising in the early church and Tom Wright's book called Early Christian Letters for Everyone says James heard people talking about faith Not meaning a rich, lively trust in the loving, living God, but rather a shell, a husk, an empty affirmation, a body without a spirit. How frustrating for James to be knee-deep in need. And then seeing those who professed faith in a Messiah whose very manifesto upturned the world's priorities, guffing these mere platitudes of blessing without action. Immediately before this chapter, as we heard last week, James shines a light on favoritism and how it shuns the kind of kingdom and kingdom attitude that Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. James challenges the early church to bring their actions and their lives into line with their words. Earlier in the chapter in verse eight, James cites Jesus's command, love your neighbor as yourself. It was the second half of the response given by Jesus when the Pharisees asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus first says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul and strength. Why is that important? Well, because in verse 19, James writes that merely professing God is one isn't enough. He and Jesus would have grown up with those words, with God is one, because it was, and still is, the very heart of Jewish daily prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, followed by, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Jewish faith grounds itself in practices and action, loving God with all of who we are and what we do, They didn't split the mind and its thoughts and the body and its actions. It's a separation from some 400 years before Jesus coming from the Greek philosophers like Plato's and Socrates. Plato's? Plato and Socrates. Jesus, though, takes this daily prayer that was embedded in their lives into further action. The movement of faith in God isn't just upwards towards God, but outwards towards others and inwards towards ourselves. James echoes this by writing that saying or believing something without being moved into action is foolishness. Faith is not static. Besides, to quote the message from earlier, isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, says faith isn't a mere verbal formula. It won't do to simply tick the box saying I believe in one God without a radical change of life. That faith is worthless and it will not rescue someone from sin and death. Let's pause. I've been so challenged by this chapter. All too often we can be swept up in good intentions. There's a phrase which perhaps echoes a bit of what James is aiming to convict the early church of. Virtue signalling. It's defined as the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate your good character or the moral correctness of your position on a particular issue. In terms of our passage today, it's about speaking out the good intentions or beliefs without backing it up. If I'm honest, there have been lots of times when I wanna do the right thing, like uncovering my unconscious bias or changing my middle-class attitude and consumerist habits. And in those moments, I am willing to eat as much humble pie as anyone will serve me when they point out my faults. But on reflection, what do I really do to change my attitudes, to change my actions, my shopping habits, my recruitment practices, My tithing. Sure, I might be more aware of my shortcomings, but what really changed? Is it just virtue signalling? If you're feeling a little uncomfy, like me, can I just request that you hold that feeling for just a bit longer than you normally would? Perhaps, just perhaps, it's a good thing when the light of Christ shines in a place that's hidden or uncomfy, it's pretty normal for us to shift in our seats and glance away. It reminds me of Paul's letter to the Ephesians when he says, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from from the dead. Perhaps he too was writing to shake people out of a faith slumber. And this is the passage, Ephesians 5. You're out in the open now. The bright light of Christ makes your way plain. So no more stumbling around. Get on with it. Figure out what will please Christ and then do it. Don't waste your time. Rip off the cover of frauds and see how attractive they look in the light of Christ. Wake up from your sleep. Climb out of your coffins. Christ will show you the light. So watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. Make sure you understand what the master, Jesus Christ, wants. Hearing these words, I confess I am shaken. When I was writing this, I sat and I considered what things I needed to do differently in my life. How do I spend my time, my money, my thought life? my TV time, my speech, my friendships. Is the message of Christ indelibly etched into every and single one of my actions? No. So I desperately cling to the comfort blanket of grace that Jesus bought for me with his blood. Dear God, let me not cheapen that grace and his sacrifice with my complacency and reliance on God's unending generosity. Let me be grateful and let that gratitude be a worshipful life of serving the poor and breaking down walls of inequality. Jesus made my life resonate with an unwavering hope that Jesus' love has no creed, no colour, no favouritism, no behave, believe, belong type of hurdle to overcome. Jesus' love includes and turns the world upside down. God is not interested in my virtue signalling. He's not interested in my social media or my pretty words. God looks at the heart, just as he said to the prophet Samuel about the boy David. God gives the richest inheritance to the poorest and the meekest and the persecuted. Maybe we need to stop thinking about our faith as a ticket to salvation Perhaps we should be challenged to consider the depth of the invitation that Christ's life and sacrifice offer us, reconciling us with the Creator, making a way and showing us the way to live. We are invited to join in with reconciling the world to God, to live lives which reflect the light and life of Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. What came into existence in Jesus was life, and that life was the light to live by. The life light blazed out of the darkness, and the darkness could not come out and put it out, just as it says in John 1, verses three to five. Dead faith cannot shine. So let us not stand by. Let's not, as Alyssa challenged us a few weeks ago, just hear, but not do. Let's be authentic created to reconcile the world and its inhabitants to its maker. If we want to inherit the kingdom then we must help build it with sacrifice, with humility and with integrity. We're going to end with some of Jesus's words from Matthew 5. Jesus's Sermon on the Mount is one of the main anchors to James's entire letter. So Like the original hearers of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5, let us quiet ourselves, hearing and humbly accepting the message that God plants within us. Arriving at a quiet place, Jesus sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope, with less of you There is more of God and God's rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that cannot be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you will ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are, and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? If you've lost your usefulness, you'll end up in the bin. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colours in the world. If I, Jesus, make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you here on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Lord Jesus we are humbled by your grace to us and we are moved to try and invite you in daily so that we may live more like you and say less and do more to think less great intentions and live more good actions Would you fill us, empower us and challenge us so that we may be more like you. And through that, this world may reflect more and more of your kingdom. In your precious name. Amen.